And this morning, we're going to focus on the second half of verse 3, where David says about his shepherd that he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. If you're taking notes this morning, the title of the message is The Route of Righteousness. Write that down. I don't have it up there on the screen, but it's The Route of Righteousness, or depending on where you're from, The Root of Righteousness. I'm not sure actually how to perfectly pronounce that. Route, root, root, whatever you got. Um, but we're talking today about the route of righteousness. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, as we come to you, it's an expression of what we said, that we do not want this to be a time where we just get to know a psalm. We want this to be a time where we can get to know you as our shepherd. Lord, we don't want this to just be a religious gathering, a traditional assembly. Father, we want this to be all that you want it to be for us, which is a real life and time and space encounter with you, the living God. So we've sang songs to you already, affirming in our hearts that you are worthy of our whole lives. And now we seek to worship you by opening up our attention and our hearts and our lives to the instruction of your word. So Lord, help us continue to worship you now. I ask God for the power of your Holy Spirit for this sermon to be more than what Andrew prepared and more to be to be more than just the words of man and the words of flesh. We pray for this to be a time where we get to hear from your spirit. And we believe that you want to speak to us. Even more maybe than we want to hear from you. And I pray, God, that you would just give us the ears to hear what you want to say. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, we're getting back into our study of Psalm 23 this morning. And that's because I was out of town Last Sunday, was very thankful to have Kyle Chamberlain up here filling in in the pulpit, doing an incredible job. Can we give him a hand? Thank him for teaching the word to us last week. Kyle preached, I think, a very timely message about the importance of how to arm ourselves and how to engage in what he called Christian combat through the primary tool of prayer. Um, but getting back into, like I said, getting back into Psalm 23, excited to be back here. Last Sunday, last weekend, I was up in the good old ATL Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia, da-na-na, Georgia. Uh, it was a sweet time. I was actually up there to uh, officiate the wedding of a longtime former uh, a friend who was a, a student in my student ministry. We're talking like 10 years ago. And so those are probably my favorite weddings to do, the Rachel and the Rickies of the world. You know what I'm saying? Um, that was a, that's a couple in our church who went through my youth ministry. But it's really cool to see uh, just students years ahead to catch up with them. And this specific uh, young man who uh, I was real close to, he was in high school. He ended up moving up to Georgia and uh, getting engaged to a worship leader. So I was like, hey, I approve. That sounds good. That sounds like a good one. And uh, so it was just so awesome to go up there, go up to ATL to officiate this wedding. I've been to Atlanta before um, for our passion for the passion conferences. Some of you guys actually have been on that when we went together, uh, the passion conferences that happen every year in ATL. Um, but I'd never truly been to Atlanta. I've been to ATL. 
Okay, I've been to the urban, been to the city, but uh, the broader Atlanta landscape was a new experience for me. Um, if you've ever been there before, um, you need a bit of help navigating your way around if, you, if you're uh, headed outside of it. Now, a lot of times people will tell you they're from Atlanta. I'm from Atlanta. They're not from Atlanta. It's like when people who've never been to Florida say, where are you from? And you're like, Boca. And they're like, yeah, yeah, Boca. Uh, it's north of Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, Fort Lauderdale. And then you finally, what do you say? North of Miami. And so you're pretty, they're like, okay, you live in Miami. And you don't, you don't. But, you know, when, when someone usually says they're from Atlanta, they're, they're probably from some kind of suburban or rural surrounding town. That's kind of how Atlanta is. It's spread out everywhere. Uh, it's kind of all over the map. Um, and with this wedding that I was a part of, there was a different event at different times of the day in different towns. So um, I remember getting my instructions for when I would get there. And first of all, I got off the plane, and I had never been to the Atlanta airport before, which even that can be the amazing race, if you know what I'm saying. It is, I think, the largest, most busy global airport. It's a hot spot for connections. Uh, it's packed, and it's huge. It's beautiful, but it's huge. So right away, I get off of the airplane, and I'm rushing. I'm the crazy guy sprinting through the terminal. I land at about 1 o'clock, 1, 1.05, and I have to pick up a rental car at the Enterprise in a place called Buckhead. These are the instructions I got. That's about 30 to 40 minutes away, and they close by 2. So I get off, and I did this thing called calling an Uber, okay, which I'm familiar with Uber before. In fact, I've driven Uber for a weekend. It was a short stint, supplemental income opportunity that came and went. Um, one too many encounters in my car. It was a bit scary. But anyway, um, called the Uber, and thank God for this Uber driver who was basically, I felt like one of those secret agents, like in like a Bond movie, like turn left, okay, turn right, you know, duck, you know, like it was one of those kind of guiding experiences. Uh, I finally got out. He walked me out of the airport to, because there's like all these, there's the international, the domestic, it's all over. I finally get in the car and I'm, he's helping me navigate. I get to Buckhead and then I got to drive from Buckhead to Marietta, but then there was the rehearsal dinner in Camden, uh, but then we had to come back together to circle up in... Waleska, and that's where, the, that's where the wedding took place. So this thing is just all over the place. And I got my rental car, made it in time, thanks be to God. Um, but I remember thinking this past week as I was driving from town to town in all these different little suburban locations, I remember thinking how desperate I am for technology. Like, do you guys remember the days before Google Maps like, I remember going on vacations as a kid, and my mom would have a, a binder. You guys ever seen one of these? Binders. And in the binder, she, for our vacations, she would have everything printed out and pre-planned. Um, I remember when MapQuest came out. Do you remember MapQuest? It was like, look at this navigational technology, you know? And you could print out your map. And even before that, even before the day and age of, of, of dial-up internet and, and MapQuest, I remember going on vacations as a young kid and there being a full-on map. Remember those? And you'd be sitting in the, you'd have the navigator, you'd be driving and you'd have this giant fold-out poster map and that was your Siri. There was no turn left. There was, okay, I think I was supposed to turn at that X right there. I mean, navigation has gotten so much easier with time and I think, you know, 
it's one of those things that we can really easily take for granted. I remember thinking as I'm driving from one spot to the other, just following this little GPS arrow, I remember thinking, where would I be right now without modern technology? I would have been lost. I would have been, especially Brittany wasn't with me either, so you know I was in trouble. It was just me and my app. Well, there's one thing that David is reminding us about sheep today that I think that, that can apply and is also true about us and technology. Um, if there's one thing that's true about sheep, it's this. Sheep, like us, like me, I should say, in Georgia and uh, ways, sheep are entirely dependent on the navigating ability of their shepherd. The navigating ability of their shepherd. You see, sheep need a navigating, a wise, a directional shepherd in order to take them to places that they could never end up on their own. Sheep are in desperate need of a shepherd for that very reason. That's what David's talking about here. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. David is describing the navigational skill of a shepherd to take sheep where they desperately would not be able to go on their own. We've been looking at this a bit already, kind of how God as our shepherd serves as sort of a GPS navigator, giving us what we need, taking us to where we need to go so that we don't get lost along the journey of life. We've looked at already how sheep are able to eat and lie down because their shepherd takes them to green grass and tender grass. We looked at a couple weeks ago how sheep are able to satisfy their deep quench for thirst because their shepherd is a good navigator and he knows all the good watering spots and so he leads them beside the still waters. You see, sheep, if left to themselves, well, they won't be found unless the shepherd pursues them. Um, a lot of people think this about sheep, that, you know, just kind of let them be, leave them to themselves. They should be okay. Well, we, we know the reality of sheep is not only are they defenseless to predators, but when you really look at these incredible creatures that God made, one of the most insightful things about sheep is that really a sheep's own worst enemy is itself. Sheep, sheep don't even need predators. They are their own. They're dumb enough to kill themselves. And so what you find with sheep is that if they're left to themselves, what they'll do in a pasture is that they will graze a pasture. And as creatures of habit, there's a great, by the way, we're going through this, seeing the metaphor between sheep and humans, right? As creatures of habit, what they will do is they will graze a luscious grassland until it has become a desert wasteland. There, there's some areas where you could go to Middle East, Morocco, even the west uh, coast of, a, of the U.S., um, all across North Africa, where there are pastures that are now wastelands where sheep have so grazed and so destroyed these areas that there's even roots that have been dug up from the grass. And the sheep will stay there if no one's leading them out. They'll stay stuck in that place, and it will be to their own peril. As parasites will fill in, as, as thirst will kick in, in our book that uh, in the book that I've been reading alongside the study in Psalm 23, it's called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. It gives us the perspective of an actual experienced shepherd reading David's psalm here. Um, this is what he said. He says, sheep always need to be kept on the move. They must always be shifted from pasture to pasture in order to prevent overgrazing. In fact, a really good shepherd, hence the name of our title, who 
ultimately we see is Jesus, the good shepherd. But a really good shepherd, listen, will have a predetermined plan of action, a deliberate planned rotation from one grazing ground to the other in order to secure that these sheep are not grazing themselves to death. So here's the picture that David is giving us. We always want to have this context here, kind of have that nice sheepy context to really get us into the story here of what's going on. And that's what David is talking about. Just like a navigational app, my God takes me where I could never end up on my own and would otherwise end up stuck. He leads me. He takes me where I need to go. He leads me, notice this, in the paths of righteousness. So we want to notice here where he is taking us. Where is he leading us? We've, we've looked at still waters. We looked last week at how God, or two weeks ago, how God restores our soul. When sheep find themselves maybe pregnant or overweight, they can get stuck, backs down, feet up, and we see the shepherd taking care of them, getting them back on their feet. We've seen the shepherd makes them lie down in green pastures. But notice this particular place that almost David switches. He's been very metaphorical up until this point, but he gets rather spiritual here. And he says, the shepherd, your shepherd, my shepherd, Jesus, as he is leading us, taking us where we desperately need to go but can't go on our own, he's taking us toward this direction of this thing called righteousness. This directional righteousness. That's where he's leading us. That's where he's moving us. You could say it this way. Your and my good shepherd is always moving us from where we are Toward righteousness. He's always leading us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now, this is one of those words, righteousness, that is often overused and underdefined. I remember growing up in the church hearing this word righteousness, and I think it was the chistness that really threw me off. Like, look at that E in there. That's kind of spiritual, right? It's a re- even just the wording of it, it's like righteousness. It's got this, this like oomph to it, you know? And it can be rather intimidating and overused and often underdefined. This Hebrew word righteousness that David uses, it's the same word that's used all throughout the Old Testament to describe correctness or accuracy. The opposite of it would be something like sinfulness or incorrectness or brokenness. You could even think of wrongness. Oftentimes the word righteousness is used, especially in the Old Testament, to describe a life that's in obedience to the laws and the command of God. It's a life that's right. It's a life that's on point. It's a life that's focused and accurate. And unrighteousness is a life that's practicing lawlessness or disobedience to the commands of God. But, but it's deeper than just rule keeping. I think this is one of those words that we look at and we're like, oh, oh, God wants me to keep all the rules. Got it, let's close in prayer. And we can kind of think that way about this word, but it's so much richer in the context of the Hebrew language. It's so much richer in the background of the Old Testament. Here's, a, I think, a more comprehensive understanding of what the word righteousness means. This is where God is leading us toward, and we're going to see he's actually leading all things here. But righteousness is this. It's the alignment of all things in accordance with the perfect will of God. Righteousness is the alignment of all things in accordance with the perfect will of God. So certainly that should look like keeping the commands of God. When God says don't steal, don't commit murder, to be in alignment with that will of God, that's righteous, but it's, it's even broader than that. 
Okay, what we have here with righteousness is I think we have a vision of how things were made to be. In fact, the easiest way to understand this word is just to take out the isness, the chis, that really spiritual part, okay? And just simplify it to the first five letters. R-I-G-H-T. Righteousness, right? We've all had a sense of the wrongness of life. We say things like, that's just, that's wrong. What you said to her, what you did, wrong. Incorrect, off. And we all long for a sense of rightness in our own lives, to the oppressed around us. In this whole world, there's this longing for things to be made right, for righteousness. Now, as Christians, we are those that um, look back. We're, we're called to be a historical people. This is one of the wisest things that we can employ as 21st century followers of Jesus to be, be wise to remember who God is and what he's done in the, in the past. And it's always important to go back even to the very beginning where God made all things right. And so as we live in the presence, we're remembering when things were right, we're sensing things are wrong, but then we also focus our eyes onto the future as Christians. We live in the present tense according to future realities. And one of those is listed in 2 Peter 3. This talks about the new heavens and the new earth. This is where all things are headed. And it says in 2 Peter 3.13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth, look at this, in which righteousness dwells. See, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the longing that each one of us have for what? Restoration, right? It's why we watch Fixer Upper, okay? It's, it's why we buy old furniture and make it new again. It's why we buy uh, products that are new and have been painted to made look old. We long for this sense of we, we were drawn to restoration. We talked about this hope that we have as, as Christians that we want to bring into this world, that we want to model into this world, that though things are broken, we serve a God who specializes in making dead things come to life again. He specializes in taking what's old and dilapidated and broken and making it new. He's done that in our lives, right? We were dead, but he made us alive. We are in Christ, so we're a new creation. The old things have passed away. And then we look to this hope in Revelation that says, that describes this vision of God being with his people and God's people being with him. And, and there's this, this picture of God standing up and he proclaims on that throne in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. He says, I will make, behold, I will make all things new. This hope we have. That, that though we, you, know, you hear it every day, society is just a downward spiral, things are getting so bad, it doesn't matter how dark things look around us, there's a light coming. Jesus will reign. We've read the back of the book, we know how this thing ends, and it ends with the restoration of all things. But what I love about 2 Peter is I think this gives us a vision of what that looks like. It looks like righteousness. It looks like the way Revelation says it, no more cancer, no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow, no more grief. When this new heavens and new earth comes, it's a place of righteousness and restoration. That's the vision that we get. And we see this as something so near and dear to the heart of God. Uh, listen to this reference. It's Jeremiah. You can jot this down. Jeremiah 9, 24 says this, that God delights in seeing righteousness exercised on the earth. He delights in it. 
It, it thrills his heart to see righteousness done on the earth. It's where all things are moving toward, things being made right again, which happens when Jesus is right at the, the center. But the cool thing about Psalm 23 and what this is telling us is the way in which God is moving that story along, things were right, things have become broken through sin, but there's this hope of things being made right again. The way that God is moving the story along, I love this, is as our shepherd, he's moving us into righteousness. That's a lot of times I think the thing we forget. We look around the world and we go, man, this place is so unrighteous. Look at all the problems. Look at them. Look at that political party. Look at that political opinion. Look at that issue, that issue, that issue. And we kind of go, God, we're longing for your kingdom to come and your will be done. And let righteousness reign on the earth. And God goes, yeah, I know. That's why you're there. I'm leading you in a path of righteousness for my namesake. See, that's how the story moves along. God leads us to righteousness. Um, you, you can almost say it this way. We have a shepherd who is committed, whether or not we are, <laughs> we have a good shepherd who is committed to our, each of our own individual righteousness. God is so concerned with, he's so broken for what's wrong in this world. He's so broken for what's wrong in us that he is committed to making things right. And it starts with us. He begins that work in us. We become these kind of, this foretaste of what's to come. So that someone encounters you and they go, there's something, there's not, not everything's right about you. You've got, you got a lot of things wrong with you, but there's just something right I can't put my finger on. What is it? What did, what did you get right? Maybe they say. It's a chance for us to say, well, why does he do it? It's for his name's sake. Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you who's done this work in my life. Now, before we get kind of too confused here, I, I want to help break this down a little bit. Um, man, I've, I've kind of watched, I think, a unique... Um, journey happen in the church, especially in the American church, in th just theologically speaking, um, when it comes to the idea of righteousness. And, and today, where I think a lot of people have ended up, because they've kind of, here's where a lot of us, I think, have come from. A lot of us have come from the background where it's all about what you do. Gospelless Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. Christianity that's more about good advice than it is about good news. That's, that's not following Jesus. So a lot of us come from this background uh, where it's all about behaviorism, right? Are you righteous? So right now you're like, well, this is one of those like Southern Baptist sermons Andrew's preaching this morning. You're being righteous, right? And a lot of you guys, you kind of get like PTSD when you hear that. You're like, oh, I was raised in that kind of church. Okay, that's a little scary. That's, that's a little tough. But on the other hand, some of us have come from this tradition where we've kind of kicked against that. And we go, man, that, 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 that legalism. And so we embrace the gospel but what do we do with a framework of being holy for I am holy? Well, don't, don't you dare. Don't quote that. It is finished. It absolutely is finished. But today, I mean, especially, don't, you got to watch out for the blogs today, the blogosphere. Facebook comment section. Oh, if you, if you doubt the fall of man, just read a Christian Facebook comment section. And you have these debates and arguments, and it's like any time, it seems like any time someone is calling a Christian to walk in holiness, it's like, you're a legalist. You're a moralist. You don't know the gospel. So here's what I think a lot of us, we end up in this place where like our understanding of righteousness is just kind of like this junk drawer of Facebook comments. This junk drawer of conclusions where it's like, okay, what does it actually mean 
to follow Jesus into righteousness. What does it actually mean that he leads me to be righteous? Let's try to unpack that a little bit. Would you turn to 2 Corinthians 5? 2 Corinthians 5. In 2 Corinthians 5, you have what is um, not the most detailed summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you have um, one of the most poetic one-liners, I think, describing what's occurred through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And here's the first thing that we see about our shepherd and his commitment to our righteousness. The, the first thing that we see is that the first way, rather, that our shepherd leads us in righteousness is you could understand it this way, and we're going to read it here. He, he leads us to a righteousness in a uh, positional sense. He leads us into righteousness positionally. We're talking about our position, our standing before God. Okay? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he, for he, this is God the Father, made him, Jesus, for he made him who knew no sin. So he knew no unrighteousness. What did Pilate say? I find no fault in him. He made him who knew no sin, look at this, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So here's Paul talking about what we could say is positional righteousness, our standing. Um, and what is this? Well, you know what this is in 2 Corinthians 5.21? This is an example of how committed our shepherd is to our own righteousness. Uh, our shepherd, understand this, and by, when we say our shepherd, we're talking about Jesus, our good shepherd, who gives his life for the sheep. And Jesus, our shepherd, he is so committed to your and my righteousness and everyone else around us. The world that he so loves. He's so committed to our own righteousness that, check this out, that he was even willing to become sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see the commitment to making us righteous for his namesake? This is what he was willing to do. The Bible says he desires all men to be saved and experience this. Every person in this room, if you haven't experienced this positioning, Jesus has paved the way. He's led the way for this path to be walked out by you, for you to walk straight to Jesus and become positionally righteous. Now, to say that we have to become positionally righteous is also to assume that apart from Jesus, we're not. Amen? So, so in other words, um, the reason why Jesus is committed to our unrighteousness is maybe because he understands the extent of our unrighteousness. Or we could, I think a better word might be our non-righteousness, our sinfulness, um, which, is, which the Bible doesn't describe it in this like, oops, you know, I've fallen, <laughs> stole a cookie from the cookie jar, you know, kind of like tongue-in-cheek, like, so um, the best place for you to walk away with a Christian framework and understanding of uh, the condition of humanity and the good news of what God has done because he loves humanity is the book of Romans. If you've never read through the book of Romans, uh, specifically the first five chapters, nice and slow, I would encourage you to do that. It is the best case, the best legal case that anybody could ever make. Empowered by the Spirit, Paul makes this legal case for the condition of humanity 
but the good news of what Jesus has done to save humanity. Uh, in fact, historically, law schools would study Romans 1, 2, and 3 in their classes to teach their prosecutors how to present a good case. And when you read through Romans, let me just give you a few snapshots of what you see. You have the famous Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The, the position of humanity. Every last one of us. It doesn't matter what our symptoms are. We got the same sickness. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So to get a little bit more practical, what we're talking about, Romans 3.10 says this, There is none righteous. No, not one. Quoting from the Psalms. No one's right. At the end of the day, here's what the scriptures say. No one has really sought after God. The natural bend and tendency of the human heart is not to embrace God. It's to reject God. Naturally. Apart from any work of the Spirit. Come on, Pursuit of God book club people. All right? Apart from the work, the, the doctrine of prevenient grace where God does something in my dead heart. Uh, you know, we've heard these illustrations of like, you know, salvation. It's like you're drowning and you reach up to be rescued. That is a very nice way to put it. A more accurate understanding is that, Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we're dead. We're really dead at the bottom of the ocean. And the only way to be rescued is not only for a diver to come deep down into my darkness, but to resuscitate me and bring me back to life. No one is righteous, no, not one. Um, let's get sheepy. Isaiah says it this way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Here's the way Isaiah says it. Here's, here's the understanding. Every last one of us, we are in, unfortunately, we are in Adam. And though we were created to steward the gifts for the glory of the giver, we have rejected the giver and worshiped the gifts, namely ourselves, the creature. And so earlier in Romans 1, what Paul says about this is that in light of this condition, the wrath of God, the righteous, holy judgment of God is revealed against humanity for all of their unrighteousness who suppress the truth of God in a lie. We don't want to have a relationship with God because there's accountability there. We, we don't want to acknowledge that I was made for a greater purpose than my own name and my own glory or my own vices or my own experiences. So we suppress, like trying to push a beach ball underwater, we suppress the truth of God for a lie, and we say, oh, I'm an atheist. Holding that thing down, knowing very well the conviction that would be brought about if I were to stand before a holy God. Every last one of us, because there's no one righteous, no, not one. And, and for those of you right now who are like, this is like, a, this is Hurricane Andrew this morning. This is like, okay. Um, I want to tell you that this is what makes the good news so good. Good news is only good if it invades bad spaces, if it rescues you from a bad situation. God knew our condition. Jesus knew it. He knew the condition of humanity. That, and he, the Bible tells us this in John 3. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. That's something we did to ourselves. Our separation from God is not something that Jesus tried to push further. No, we pushed him away, and despite us pushing him away, he moved our hand out of the way, and he came to earth. Isn't that amazing? And he came to save. He came to rescue. He didn't have to. He didn't have to. But, but he understood our condition, our, our lostness, our unrighteousness, our brokenness before him. Here's the way Jesus says it in Luke's gospel. This is Jesus' words to some people who think they have it all together. 
He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Um, in that day and age, you had certain people who created these kind of like righteousness levels. And as long as you were at their level, you were right with God. If you kept a certain amount of rules, you could sort of self-medicate your sin sickness. And so Jesus comes on the scene to these guys and he goes, I didn't come here for you. Okay, people who think they don't need a savior. I came to call sinners unto repentance. I'm a doctor. I'm here for the sick, not the well. You know what he was really saying? He wasn't saying, you're well, you don't need me. He was saying, I'm here for a you that you're pushing away. I'm here for a you that you're really aware of when no one's watching. You know who you really are when no one's watching? You're sick. You're terminally ill. Every last one of us, when we go home, we take off our church face. We take off our self-righteous outfit. We need saving. We need rescuing. We need a doctor. And so Jesus pronounces himself as that doctor. Uh, he is the doctor that's come to seek and to save that which is lost, to reposition our righteousness. And when I talk about this too, I, I want to kind of emphasize what we mean here. Um, this is just good old gospel. You guys okay with this today? Just kind of talking good old gospel? So look, we talk about righteousness. I think a lot of times we look at the opposite of, of righteousness and we think unrighteousness. And there is such thing as unrighteousness, but I, I want to use a different word. I want to use the word non-righteousness. This is what we all need Jesus to save us from still, by the way. What he wants is a sense of rightness. Where we find ourselves is in a place of non-rightness, non-righteousness. And it often has two forms. Sometimes they intermingle with each other. But non-righteousness has a front door and it has a back door. So we're all sick, but some of us are really good at hiding our symptoms. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> what's up? I'm just clearing my throat. I'm not, you know, I'm not sick. What's going on? Cough? No, I just was like, <laughs> what's up? You know? Um, you know, when you really want to go somewhere, but like your friends don't want you to go because you're sick, but you're like, you're too selfish and you really want to go, so you got to fake that you're sick. Like, I'm good. I'm good. I want to be here. Non-righteousness is the sickness we are all born into through our willful turning against God, but it manifests in two ways. A front door is unrighteousness, front door. This is like the obvious, like all the sins that, you, that, that are more visible, right? The ones that are on the surface. This is blatant saying, God, I don't need you. I want this substance. I want this sexual experience. I want to do my relationship this way and not your way. I, I want to do my business this way. The Bible talks about unrighteous mammon. I want to do business in an unrighteous way. God, I, I want to do things, I want to handle my, my family this way. I only want to serve at this, you know, it's, it's, it's willful, sinful disobedience, unrighteousness. But the back door of non-righteousness is self-righteousness. This is real, it's a back door, it's sneaky. Because self-righteousness is sickness, sickness in the cloak of religion. And, and it's what Jesus encountered with the Pharisees, people who, they had their, their resume. They had their gold stars on their church attendance chart. They had their Bible verses memorized. They had the worship positions. They had them down. 
the tuning in, the open the oven. They had them all, okay? They, they, had the, they had the skit down, but here's what Jesus, in Matthew 25, listen to what Jesus says to self-righteousness. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, Matthew 25, 25, 22, 25. He said this about them. This is what he says about self-righteousness. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Now, who does that? Who, who does their dishes and doesn't clean the part that all the food and nasty stankness was, you know? And he says that self-righteousness is like a dirty dish that cleans the outside. So you can put it right back in the shelf and it looks fine. I've heard it said it's like spraying perfume in a dumpster. It's self-medicating your sickness with religiosity. He says, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then outside, then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Listen to this. You are like, look at this metaphor. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. So you, you put on a, this smile that is trying to convince everybody that there's spiritual life in you, but inwardly your heart is cold. He says, in the same way on the outside you appear, listen to this, Matthew 22, 28, in the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside, what God sees, he looks at the heart, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So both unrighteousness and self-righteousness, two friends that also love to go together, because we like to hide our unrighteousness. Oftentimes, um, Oftentimes, self-righteousness is just the, the mask of shame. It's what shame puts on, right? Because the knowledge of who we really are before God requires us to be broken and to turn and to trust and to confess and for people to look at me a certain way because I have this image. and that. The knowledge of who we really are requires us to be more concerned with what God thinks than what man thinks. Jesus told a parable. In Luke 18, just reading some more Bible to you, if that's okay. Look at, listen to verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Isn't that always the outcome? Right? The, the way, here's a great way to hide your sin, okay? Focus on everyone else's. Gossip about everyone else. Well, they're not doing this right. They're not doing that right. It's a great way to make yourself because you hide behind the spotlight that you're shining on everyone else instead of doing what First John says to do, which is what? Walk in the light. If anyone says he doesn't have sin, he's deceiving himself, and he's a liar, and the truth isn't in him. So, so Jesus is describing this kind of person who trusted in themselves my own ability to climb my way to God and despised others. And Jesus told this incredible parable. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you. Listen to this prayer. This is not a prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Lord, you are good. Thank you for me. <laughs> if you ever pen your bike, you just write the word tool right there. Just kidding. <laughs> God, thank you, that, don't write that in your Bible. God, thank you that I am not like other men. Listen to this. He starts to list these visible extortioners, 
unjust adulterers or even as this tax collector. Tax collectors were the cultural outcasts of society because they were often Jews who were betraying their people for financial gain from the Romans. At least I'm not like that guy. And some of us, some of us we, we're able to worship confidently because we're not like the person next to us. Oh, God's hearing my prayer. Why? Well, because I've overcome that sin that that person's still struggling with. Different versions of the same thing. And he goes on to list before God. This guy's trying to impress God. God, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Look at my resume. And check this out. Now here's the contrast. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer. That's a prayer. God, I have no basis in and of myself to come before you and ask for anything because I've done nothing but turn from you. But perhaps you're a God of mercy. Perhaps you could show this sinner mercy and grace. I tell you this man, Jesus says, I tell you this man, this man, this man went down to his house justified meaning righteous, made right, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says, this is the guy. What does this man have that the other man does? Does he have sin and the other one doesn't? No. You know what this man has? This man has an awareness of his need for God, an awareness that he's a sinner. The self-righteous guy, he, he had the same condition as the tax collector. But there is this pride, oftentimes the mask of shame. And so we're going into positional righteousness here. Here's what we're saying. Romans 3.20 says it this way. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, here's what we need to understand, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Here's what we have to understand about the gospel. We were humans, all of us, this world, we were, it was made right. We were made upright. We were on track. We have all willfully, in Adam, we've gotten off track. Sin has spread. Death has spread to all men. Separation, every last one of us, unrighteous. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? None of us. We might try to mask it in spirituality, but we are all like the tax collector. And the reality is, 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 is so important for us to understand is that there's no ability on our own to be made right again through keeping the law through being good Christians, through overcoming that sin struggle, for doing this or doing that, giving my money, giving my time. And some of us, we, we're like, we, we devote our lives to paying for something that we can never earn. We're wasting our life. We're living trying to attain something that Jesus already has. No flesh will be justified in the sight of God. God is not impressed with a human's resume. Wow, you did what? You went two whole days without eating. Wow. Wow, you gave a tenth of your money to the church. Oh, that's cool. Um, that was my money. You didn't give your money. You gave my money, by the way. Oh, that's, oh, you brought me some of your money. That's cool. Oh, you think I want a tenth of your money? That's so cute. I don't want a tenth of your money. I want all of it. I want your whole life. God's not impressed with our little deeds. Try, trying to, now he's a father though, right? And he loves humanity. He loves his creation. He's broken for their condition. 
He knows that no amount of human effort, you can't create a moral ladder high enough to get to heaven. You can't. He knows we can't. He knows it's a treadmill. It's not going anywhere. It's something to do. Burning some calories. It's not getting you from point A to point B. You can't travel on a treadmill. <laughs> I mean, that's probably like the next adventure, and you'll see people in traffic. You know, probably. You never know. But do you see the idea? It's not by works of righteousness. What do you and I need? Well, like this tax collector, we need God to be merciful to us. Um, merciful enough to trade places with us. What if God would do that? What if God would leave his righteous throne and be born into an unrighteous earth? And what if he would live among unrighteous people like you and me? And what if he, even though he lived a perfectly righteous life, would be convicted on a cross as though he were an unrighteous criminal? For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. On our behalf. A trade that took place. That, that's what the cross is. Do we understand this? The cross is the righteous life of Jesus. Let's understand that. The, 30 years that Je- the 33 years that Jesus lived prior to his death is a major part of the gospel, right? A lot of times we focus a lot on the cross. It's the life of Jesus that saves us as well. Because what, what did his life contain? You know what it contained? Righteousness. In fact, he fulfilled what? All righteousness. His righteousness exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then on that cross, that righteous man, that holy God, willingly, willfully, he became all the unrighteousness that you and, you and me You and I, all that we are and all that we do, all of it. He didn't become some of our sin. He became sin. He bore the full extent of it so that, listen, we could receive his righteousness. It's been said this way, that it was on the cross that God treated Jesus as though he were you so that God today could treat you as though you were Jesus. The great exchange of the gospel. We close with Romans 3, that verse we started with, where God leads us in this righteous path. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but here's the good news. We get to be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified. It's a legal term. It's a legal term for someone who's innocent. And we all know we're guilty. This is good news. It's the gift. It's the free gift of grace so that you and I, we can be positioned because our good shepherd has led us in a path of righteousness. So committed to our righteousness that he bore our sin to freely justify us, to make us right. You've heard it, just, you've heard it said, right? Justified just as if I'd never sinned. Made right through the gospel of Jesus. So now the righteousness for, for, of God is, is revealed now, that's what Romans says. Now we have the righteousness of God. All we had before this was non-righteousness. We had our version. Often rule-keeping and law-giving. But Paul says, now the righteousness of God is revealed. Look at this. Through faith in Jesus Christ. So this is something that's so pure and so true to us, especially as Protestants. We don't ever want to lose solus Christus. 
We don't ever want to lose sola fide. It's by faith alone. Sola gratia. It's through the grace of God alone. And soli deo gloria. It's for your namesake that you saved us, God. It's for your glory. I'm justified. I'm made right with you, not because of anything that I do, but because of what you've done. I put my faith in what you've done. I trust in what you've done on my behalf. And through trusting in Christ, I am, here's the, here's the theology word, I am declared righteous. Not just called to righteous, but called righteous. Maybe one of the biggest problems in our community today is there's not enough Christians, it's not just that there's not enough Christians living righteous lives, there's not enough Christians who know that they're righteous. That you truly have been justified through Jesus, that his grace is real. It's a gift to be received through faith, through trusting in him, forgiven completely. It's not that we're not saved by works. It's just not our works. You better believe every person standing before God one day, spending eternity with God one day, they will have been saved by works, but it's the works of Jesus. Jesus says, here's the work, singular, you got to do. Believe. Trust in Christ. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. You will be saved.